because we've had this sort of experience so much defeat crisis and you know social regression that sense of history is sort of being like lost and disintegrated so in history is just seen as something that just happens to you almost fatalistic deterministic and that our capacity to change how it goes it's sort of been uh, uh, depreciated so is it that the idea of our liberal subject well yeah is it the liberal subject as an idea that is dead or is it really dead The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between so between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. So why I want to talk to you is that you have written about the idea of Prometheus and how this relates to socialism. Um, so could you give us kind of a background for anybody who maybe isn't familiar with the myth of Prometheus? Prometheus was a Greek titan god who rebelled against Zeus and the, and the, shall we say, the divine establishment of Greece by giving um, the gift of fire to mankind. And obviously the myth of that shows that it's meant to sort of tell how mankind became moves from being a prehistorical sort of mammal into being a historical being because once you have fire you can you can use nature to better your own self that's like the start once you start fire you can start building civilization if you will and prometheus for his sin of doing that was chained onto a rock by zeus and was picked apart by you know all sorts of animals and birds for the rest of his days doomed for his liver to be eaten every morning and regrow every evening yeah. <laughs> why that myth is important for marx because it was actually his favorite uh greek mythology for a lot of marxists like the proletariat is now the place in place of prometheus in the sense that he has all this potential to enact world historical change yet at the same time he is enchained by the by capital i think clara zetkin kind of made that sort of analogy how the proletariat is enchained by capital just like prometheus was by the gods prometheus also kind of represents this sort of strive for freedom and creativity and industriousness and you know big titanic projects for socialism not just for socialism but you see even within 
bourgeois capitalism. They have that kind of Promethean ethic. One thing I do think is a bit sort of tragic is how the only people you see sort of defending this kind of Promethean vision, vision is like right-wing libertarians or you know the acolytes of Ayn Rand you know this sense of sort of large-scale creativity and what humans are capable of you know, and I, th I think it, it's kind of a bit tragic how within you know the socialist left that that Promethean heritage is more or less dissipated or sort of scorned upon as some kind of relic of the enlightenment that's you know destroying our environment or whatever yeah there's, there's so much to unpack in that so um this idea of like the working class being like having stolen oh no no have been given fire i suppose or had fire and and, and tried to sort of forge a way for humanity and then they get chained to a rock is such a good metaphor for mm -hmm. like the um you know the reaction that comes up after uh, after failed revolutionary attempts you know that there's a period of repression afterward um, and this is this is you know obviously the experience after 1848 the experience after the 1930s um all of these times where humanity gets chained to a rock <laughs> yeah. um but i i was wondering why is it is it is it really a recent is it a recent thing that we've lost this promethean spirit or does it were, were Marx and Engels alone in this um, always? Because it seems to me like we think like, oh, there used to be this really Promethean vision, um, but it was actually always quite confined. There were always utopian socialists whom, against whom Marx was arguing, um, and there were, there were very few kind of proper, <laughs> in my opinion, sort of progressive people in socialism as has always been the case. Or is this more of a recent thing um, like a post-war thing, the horrors of the 20th century kind of um, laid this idea to uh, to rest? Um, I suppose it depends how you see it. Because with Marx's critique of the utopian socialists, like, you can say Saint-Simon was a bit more of a Promethean because he was a the kind of big science guy, but except that he was more, as you... I think a technocrat as opposed to a kind of someone who had a more democratic sensibility. He, he, if you will, can be charged with this sort of productivist label or technocrat label. And, you know, and they, yeah, it is true that there were sort of socialists that Marx was arguing about, like Proudhon, who kind of had a, who kind of railed against the industrial revolution because it was big scale, you know, and sort of, you know, kind of took a very moralistic approach to it. Whereas Marx and Engels all saw like the potential that lay within it, within this industrial capacity that capitalism has to improve or use or be used for the betterment of all humanity in a different context. So like technology that can be used that is uh, used now to just you know create surplus value or even be used as the master of human beings can in a different context be used to the Batman human beings and human beings will be the masters of technology not the other way mm -hmm. around and 
though I do think that within like the communist movement there was a more Promethean vision you know because all of um, from Marx, Engels, Trotsky, Lenin they uh, had this uh, idea that socialism in Trotsky's word would be would increase the power of man over nature and abolish the power of man over man mm. whereas, whereas if you will the more eco-socialists more now sort of view like the power of man over man and the power of man over nature is more or less one and the same that if you increase humans humanity's power over nature that will in you know lead to sort of exploitation and the oppression of a man of a man mm. yeah. so um two things there if people don't know what technocracy is how is this different from you know people will wind up wanting to kind of go against this postmodern thrust of a lot of leftism um that is has a tendency to be sort of maybe anti-science a little bit and then they go all in on science you can see this now where people think that they're being based by like uh, taking so-called obesity science for real because of like the whole fat acceptance movement, but that's that whole science is a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> like you don't need you can laugh at some of the absurdities of the culture war without reifying shit science. So why don't we ta- why don't you tell me a little bit about what is the difference between technocracy and using technology for the betterment and the emancipation of human beings, and how can we avoid that slippage? I would make this distinction like this, that technocracy is a more sort of very elitist idea that sort of rarefies technology as well, that kind of wants to use sort of science, that kind of views society as this sort of mechanical sort of entity and people are like cogs within this great entity and they the technocrats are sort of the managers of it Mm. and they will and they will use sort of science technology to sort of manage this sort of to manage and contain people within it so that that would be the distinction i would rest on okay um and then the other question is that you know if you talk about these sorts of things online you'll always get a ton of people coming at you like quoting a letter of Marx from like 1881 talking about how if you've, you've had this happen I imagine I, um, I know I know what I've, yeah. I know what's been said yeah so but no Marx thought that Russia could avoid things and and we could you could surely that means he actually advocated for small-scale bottom-up what do you say to that criticism well the Narodniks were proven wrong <laughs> uh, those those communes were destroyed by capitalism and mm. if you read and if you read that Marx letter what it says was if if there was a proletarian revolution in the wet in the west the core capitalist countries then russia those russian communes can skip so to speak skip the capitalist um stage if you will and go yeah. straight to socialism because the proletariat have the capitalist countries and they can gain the benefits of technology modernity without without capitalism so yeah and it it annoys me too because people will quote quoting that letter at me while i'm quoting it back at them (laughs) 
So it's just like people just read each other's posts and they're like, oh, but Mark said this. Yeah. It, like quite yeah. clearly he's saying it's not of necessity that you have to go through these stages. If you have another country that's already gone through them, you can get tech from them. You can go. <laughs> There's no necessary way why you have to go through the evils of I'm capitalism part, as long of, as it's developed somewhere else. A part of, and also part of what's kind of annoying about that is we, it kind of implies we're having this debate as if we're in 1818 debating whether i know africa should we should introduce capitalist relations into africa when mm -hmm. it's already happening you know mm -hmm. it, it's been like this since 1880 the world is more if you if you will capitalism and its combined and uneven development is more mature if that's the right word now than it was in 1880 you know we've had you know a whole era of globalization of mass migration of technological advances and all and you know the shift in how in how capitalism forms itself and for example china is well is a core capitalist country today as mm -hmm. as, as well as part, certain parts of east asia that wasn't true in 1880 are we going to say that well you know well you know china doesn't need uh capitalist relations when it's already uh when it's got already it, it's already got them so the the mm. it's, it's and also and what underlines it is also this sort of dependency theory argument that really oh capitalism may have been progressive in the west but really in outside the west really which is basically a kind of euphemism for the global south that well capitalism capitalist development isn't really progressive there because of imperialism etc when as well the history of the asian tigers and china kind of refutes that altogether you know and it's in other words the the dialectical development of capitalism is now a global process it's like a universal thing the idea that capitalism is some kind of eurocentric ideas it, it wasn't even true in the 19th century it's certainly not true now hmm. i think i think part of the impulse too is this um desire not to give even a little so they know i i think a lot of people on the left just want to say capitalism is evil and if there is any perception of like saying that a lot of what has happened here is good and can be built on and gives us the potential it's, for me, which not for me, I just think it's a very basic aspect of Marxism that the future grows out of the present. You know, Communism can only be built upon the basis of capitalism itself. Mm. Capitalism is the bridge towards socialism. Yeah. And they, they don't want to uh, agree with that. They, and they think, well, if you say anything nice about capitalism, people won't be convinced. And then we'll never have a revolution. So you just have to convince people it's all bad, it's all bad, it's all bad. Um, but also, I think that part of it is this death of a kind of, or speaks to this absence of a progressive vision. Um, so it's like everything that happened is regrettable. But, you know, it's, it, you know, you can regret some of the things that happened, certainly. Uh, and capitalism doesn't need to advance into every crevice of our lives. Engels said it's up to the working class not to allow that to happen. <laughs> um, and so, but once it's done, it's done. 
there's no going back, right? There's only moving forward. Um, and it doesn't, it's hard to explain this, but it's just because something has happened that is bad. Once it happens, it doesn't mean that it's, it's like, we should wish that it never did. It's hard to explain. Like it would be good, for instance, if indigenous people and my family generations back weren't murdered and like, <laughs> and like hunted. And, well, not my family wasn't hunted, but like the Beothic or um, like just lived through horrific poverty and all of these awful things. That would be great if that didn't happen. It would have been fantastic if a revolution had happened and none of that transpired. But it doesn't mean that because it happened, we should wish it away. Like because history, yeah. history, history is tragic. It's not a morality tale. Mm. And I think a lot of this, pro, a lot of what we see in trying to somehow re, like, make the past right instead of making a better future it's part of this sort of conservatism that's i think has infected a lot of the left yeah. tell me more about that so how is it how's conservatism affected the left it's kind of hard to sort of put it pin it down but i think it comes out of a sense of because the historical project of the left was defeated and has been in crisis for so long you can get into this sort of sense of pessimism and a kind of sort of resignation about what is possible to do. And that that's kind of when you see, you know, a, uh, railing against sort of progress. I know, so I think even the idea of internationalism has even kind of, you know, the left has a kind of weird sort of attitude towards internationalism. So, yeah, that's how I see how that kind of conservatism has brooded. So with this idea of Prometheus, um, how did Marx use it specifically, if you can, in his work? It was more like a metaphor for the proletariat on the capitalism because i think there is a passage in capital where he does use like the how the capital kind of is that chain on the proletariat and how it limits mm -hmm. it and but also prometheus in the, in his work sort of represents you know it's that kind of humanistic you know striving for freedom against you know against god and against sort of any kind of institutions and and processes that kind of limit human freedom and that's kind of what the striving ethic of socialism is is freedom to realize freedom to realize the potential for freedom that lay within you know modern society i've been doing a, a grundrisse reading group with our sublation subscribers and I was talking about the sort of dialectic of man and God, which fits in with the sort of Promethean idea as well. So in the beginning, um, God creates man in his own image, right? And then you have this sort of um, the next step, I suppose, in the dialectic is we think, oh, actually, no, man created God in his own image. But then the next step, which we've not been able to realize, is a potential for man to become God, this separation of man from his godly self over time 
you know, in some ways it always was men, but it, it also wasn't because we don't really have the ability to be gods, to like think and create with no separation the way that a god can. But even the Greeks couldn't even imagine this this um, sort of full power over everything, this omnipotence. Even the gods were subject to fate. And now we can imagine a world in which, um, for better or for worse, um, all human beings uh, human beings can sort of create the world and think and create. I was talking about this, and you'll probably anticipate the issue here. Uh, and one of the people in the reading group said, well, couldn't the end of the dialectic be just as easily, there is no man? <laughs> it's not like there is no God or man is God, but um, there um, can man not negate himself. Isn't that, and isn't that kind of where we are now? That rather than realizing our godly selves, we destroyed the idea of any kind of godliness at all. What do you mean? Instead of going, instead of going, instead of going higher toward becoming gods, we went down and became animals <laughs> or nothing even. Yes, that's yeah. I I can see that. But, um, I think yeah that um, I think if. Um, there is this process of social decay and you know immiseration and proletarianization that happens that happens as well within capitalism as long alongside the progress that man can humans can sort of if you will regress back into um sheer animal existence and like especially since with capitalism with every technological advance there is always a jeopardy like take nuclear with nuclear power you can have you can light up entire cities yet you can destroy them like that knowing the connection between capitalism with crisis and war and all that stuff the cri the jeopardy with that is even greater so like if if you will, there was a world war now, it could be a nuclear one. And that could, mm -hmm. that would literally regress humans back into sheer animal existence of having to, if you will, rebuild civilization, like turn civilization into a fallout video game where you <laughs> use, a, where you use like bottle caps as currencies and you, you set up like, you know, differing kind of gangs to, over territory to start accumulation and all that stuff. You so humanity will have to start all over again. Do you know I feel like that's possible? <laughs> I feel like that's a lot a lot more likely <laughs> than us sort of stealing fire from the gods and using it for good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's that's the jeopardy. Both both mm -hmm. scenarios are very are very possible. And that that's why you know, Marxism is not about the inevitability of socialism. It doesn't believe that. It's all like mm -hmm. socialism has to be consciously ar like arrived at and directed. Like the proletariat has to consciously take a hold of history and divert it to a new social form. Mm -hmm. yeah. How how optimistic are you about that possibility? <laughs> well. Um, short term, I'm not optimistic. I don't, obviously, 
you can only start being optimistic if you start from somewhere. You know, I think the, you know, the project for socialism as a political project will take decades. So in terms of organizing and mm-hmm. the, you know, the working class sort of make, you know, making people aware of social reality and, you know, trying to form a political movement. And that's, but then, you know, and, then, and this is where I will differ with, say, someone like Ben Burgess or Matt McManus, who I jokingly call Rosie and Jacobins, who, <laughs> who sort of want to take a shortcut and think you can get to socialism via the Democratic Party in the US. And I think that's, no, that's, that's the graveyard if you're going to try to do that. So, yeah, I, you know, I'm hopeful. I'm in the sense that I think the possibility for, you know, abundance, for freedom is always there, even now within capitalism. Like capitalism has expressed, capitalist society expresses a potential that is distorted, you know, scrambled, even on appearance very inhuman but does express a potential for a global society based on abundance and freedom to arise. Mm. And it's up to us to realize that potential. We talked to Chris Coutron recently about this topic, and he said the exact same thing that you did, which is uh, building a socialist movement is going to take a long time. And one of the comments that uh, was sort of left on our sort of YouTube video was, we don't have time. Um, And, you know, I know that there's this, this like blackmail where it's like, don't think, don't think, there's no time to think, we just have to act now and even, you know, I, I, I'm sympathetic to that argument, but at the same time, we just talked about the real possibility of nuclear war. Is it the case that we can kind of sit back and, oh, this is going to take decades? Um, and and the other thing is the idea of um, we have to go in and sort of teach people things seems to me to be going down into that technocratic territory where it's like, Oh, if only the people had the proper consciousness that we intellectuals do, then we would be able to avert disaster. I mean, how do we avoid the overlaps between this, this, these people that we don't like that who, who have constructed a new kind of subjectivity that they think is just natural and a, a true reflection of human beings, which is that it is weak and it requires people to go in and fix them. How do we avoid reproducing that as socialists? So one, do we have time? And two, do we really need to be teachers? Um, as, well, yes, we have time. We can always extend that time, you know, like nuclear war is not inevitable. And obviously that things, you know, even under capitalism, progress is possible. Like, and, you know, it's not gonna, like I always say, nothing is inevitable. And it's always like down to human action whether these things happen or not. Um, as for what's the second question about raising consci- consciousness, as <clears throat> well, you know, working, you know, the working class people are not stupid. You know, they do they they live the reality of 
of um, capitalism. Every day they live it, and when it, but <clears throat> at the same time that there does need you do need a bit of um, clarification. Like they may know why capitalism is problematic, and why things are bad, but they not may not know why it is. There's nothing wrong with education. It's just there's a difference between education and brainwashing. You know. <laughs> And obviously, socialists shouldn't be in the shouldn't be in the、um, business of brainwashing people or like trying to build up, you know, drones. But nonetheless,、oh. that, but we sh- but nonetheless we understand that working class people, like everyone else, has the capacity to reason and to understand. And and there's you know. There's nothing wrong with trying to appeal to that reason and understanding, and trying to have the argument over it. Because whether we like it or not, we are the minority. In terms of us, you know, Marxist sort of intellectual types, we are the minority, and we, you know, you have to start from somewhere. Are you、yeah. willing? To, are you willing to have that argument or not? Are you willing to? Engage in that battle of ideas or not? Yes, and I think that's the key: is to engage in a battle of ideas as fundamentally equals. Yeah. <laughs> as as human beings who are equally trying to come to grips with the problems of our times, with our with hum, like what to do about things, to understand problems and and figure out how to solve them, and that we are all you know. I what what makes me sort of. Bristle or kind of start thinking this doesn't sound right is when it's like we need to go in and educate, you know. And you know the picture that I get in my mind is like libs of TikTok where someone's like、ah! screaming at these people,、ah! like, mouth wide open, you know, angry face. I was like, we want to avoid that.、Mm-hmm. I don't know what I want to do, but I don't want to do that. And I just. Just to give kind of an example, so and it also kind of assumes that the left has all the answers, which they fucking don't. <laughs> you know, I I think that I have figured some things out, but I very much recognize, no, I don't think I've figured anything out. There there are very few things that I am certain about that I couldn't be convinced otherwise on. I think, or they're like my thought is always developing, always, always, always. The idea that it would just stop is crazy.、Um, but just to give an example.、Um, During the sort of truckers protests, I was talking to my aunt, my brother, every day, who were there、um, all day long, and and、um, I was arguing with my brother, but in a, like a a really I don't know I liked I, whenever I argue with people I do try not to ever be personal, especially with my own family,、um, but. So we were having it out, arguing about things, and he was trying to bring me over to his side and convince me、uh, that this is what how we should understand the situation. This is what's happening. I was trying to bring him on the other side, and I was he was using my data to explain things, and I was using his data <laughs> to explain things. And eventually,、uh, we came. I learned a humongous amount of things that were about that situation that I didn't understand before, and. Um, my brother, who thought that all communists were a bunch of crazy people who were like,、uh, you know, screaming at him all the time about his language and such,、um, sort of purity police, 
learned that that is not necessarily the case. And that while I was at the time a blue haired intellectual, I did, <laughs> did not share um, those views. And anyway, so we were arguing and talking and talking. And then he starts, you know, I was reading some of the stuff that he sent me and, and he was reading stuff that I sent him. I sent him Oscar Wilde's Soul of Man Under Socialism, which he really liked. <laughs> and uh, then one day he comes to me and he says, oh, you know, I was watching a documentary about um, the former Soviet Union and uh, they did all these interviews with people. And I just thought it was interesting that not a single one of them said that now it's better. <laughs> <laughs> And this was somebody who started out like thinking he was an anti-socialist and an anti-communist. And I'm not saying the Soviet Union was great or anything and that we should like, but I just thought that it's a, it's just a massive kind of trajectory for somebody to go on who starts out thinking they might be right wing um, because they don't like this sort of the perception of the left that gets sort of bandied about on the internet and the culture wars. Uh, and then is curious enough to see what really existing socialism was like. <laughs> <laughs> to say, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. Not saying that, again, that the USSR is a great thing, but just anyway. But that's the kind of what I have in mind, and that it's about learning from people. And I just think some of the very best uh, intellectuals um, were like autodidacts, um, working class autodidacts. Um, there's like stories of, I mean, people say, oh, well, the working class doesn't need to re read capital. Certainly. Um, but there were lots of like reading groups uh, in warehouses and stuff where people were reading Capital. There's this book called um, by Jonathan Rose on the on the sort of auto uh, something called the work about the English working class it's about autodidacticism in in, mm -hmm. the, in in the English working class during the 19th and 20th century, and there's a bit about what your the reading list of what the a Scottish mill worker would read if part of these sort of like reading groups and education groups and some of what was on there would kind of embarrass an undergraduate today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. And of course, like initially, a lot of socialists um, objected to state education which was specifically an attempt to put down the forms of education that working class people had organized for their own children, um, which they saw as, as dangerous. So there's, it's not like people without our careful guidance are not intellectual uh, and are not curious about the world and don't want to find the answers in the same way that we have through the course of our lives wanted to find the answers. And also like, I feel like, creating this divide, I, I, I feel like it's from the pressure of the, the left and online left that I create this divide because now I'm, I teach in a university, but I am from that, you know, <laughs> I am from that, those difficult, I come from those kinds of difficulties and what made me interested in this wasn't because I went to university and learned about Marx. In fact, what I learned about Mar so-called Marxism in university was like cultural critique and anti-consumerism and stuff like that. That's what I yeah. learned. I was shocked to learn that when I actually read Marx in the original, you know, instead of reading it via the Frankfurt School or my sociology textbooks, uh, how based he was, <laughs> how, how incredibly optimistic it was. And I had never heard that kind of optimism in my life, ever, 
it I what had come to me as like progressive and as a good person was you should be a pessimist. You should be uh, suspicious of humanity and the masses and that that would make you good and different. And when I actually read Marx's work, I was shocked. Yes, I found the same reaction. Well, especially when I first read the Communist Manifesto, <laughs> two things struck out to me. The beginning bit where he's like praising the bourgeoisie and like that didn't quite make sense. It's like, why are you praising these people when mm. you are supposed to be like ultra critical of them? And then mm -hmm. the second bit where he criticizes the socialists, the true socialists, feudal socialists, reactionary socialists. I, that made me kind of was like that to me was actually the most interesting bit about it. It's like, why is he criticizing these people and for what reason? Like, and then that's when I sort of when you read into it and you see why he's had why he had those views, it makes it put Marxism in a very different light than what I originally saw it as, which you know, because a lot of kind of colloquially Marxism was just like anti capitalism. That's it. It's like bourgeoisie mm -hmm. are evil, you know, the you know, the bourgeoisie are evil capitalism's evil capitalism's bad cap individualism's individualism is bad consumerism is mm. bad capitalism makes us greedy blah 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 capitalism destroys the environment yada 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 that's but then when you read marx it's you find a more nuanced actually view of capitalism that it it, it is a dialectic between progression and regression and both are true at the same time and that mm -hmm. capitalism is a, the most revolutionary system that humanity has seen so far. But what makes it so revolutionary, revolutionary is what's also bad about it. And what's bad about it is also what's kind of good about it. You know? <laughs> and to a lot of people, that doesn't, that, a lot of people struggle with that. How can you, mm -hmm. how can you have those two thoughts? In you at the same time and a lot of people struggle with that because they want to talk about this in a very sort of simplistic one way or the other good versus evil you know and history is just not like that yeah there's uh i, I had a conversation recently with um someone who considered themselves like an anti-marxist anti-communist type and uh he was saying oh yeah you know you can find if you go to read Capital, uh, you can find it's so contradictory. Just every it, one, he says one thing at one point, and he says the opposite at another point. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, when you want to read a text without ever actually reading a text, you just go in and looking for that kind of stuff. And what also kind of interested me more is the relationship between Marxism and the Enlightenment, because there's because I've seen. Over the recent years, this this debate about what the relationship between Marxism and liberalism is, and mm -hmm. then two positions which I think are kind of wrong. One is just like, well, liberalism's bad, so Marxism hates liberalism, blah blah blah, mm -hmm. which kind of, which sort of you know and kind of sees kind of liberalism as kind of just well the, a kind of ideology, false consciousness. Of the bourgeoisie to kind of rationalize its class rule etc etc mm -hmm. and even though it kind of it so weirdly assumes that marxism just came out of a vacuum <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that's while, a good point. Yeah. While you know the other side, which is which is where kind of Matt McManus kind of falls on, which is kind of implies that you know Marxism is kind of liberalism plus this, etc. Plus you know, and then you know, democratic socialism is basically Marxism plus John Rawls. You know, and that, and I think that's kind of wrong because that's kind of just saying because it's kind of like the criticism of bourgeois socialism which is that you just one just merely affirms the slogans of the french revolution and that's how you deal with it when marxism is a kind of dialectical critique of the of the enlightenment itself in that in that it sort of takes up what um what hegel and kant and rousseau do and tries to, and uses the tools of the Enlightenment itself to critique it, bourgeois society and bourgeois ideology, if you will. You know, um, for example, human nature, bourgeois ideology from Machia Machiavelli to Rousseau has a very essentialist view of human nature. Whether it is, you know, man is wicked, corrupt, therefore you need a Leviathan to keep him in line, or Rousseau, man is, you know free but is made as you know man is born free but is forever in chains but marxism has a more i think dynamic view of human nature that man humans are historical beings so what mm -hmm. what makes up our human nature changes with history and with the social forms and it's a dialectical process that our how we act upon the world how we act upon nature changes that nature changes the world but that also changes our own humanity our own human nature and thus human nature sort of expands with time so i and that's one difference between marxism and liberalism i think and that's where that dialectical critique of the enlightenment and liberalism comes in so yeah and then of course the the fact that liberalism can't help but to negate itself eventually, which became clear, obviously, in the eight, 1840s. Um, and was if it wasn't clear then, it was clear by 1853. Um, or was it 1851 when Marx made that uh, famous speech in English <laughs> to, uh, to working men when he was talking about how he had come to this realization long before really when he became a communist <laughs> that uh, yeah. um yeah, yeah that liberal values could not be realized and moreover they would be negated because he watched as as soon as there was an attempt to kind of rise up everybody abandoned their liberal values in favor of oppression yeah and a good one of marx's i think best text on this is the holy family which is mm. and there's, a, there's a chapter in it where he directly engages with like enlightenment thinkers and sort of talks about how sort of critiques bourgeois materialism as being one-sided and not complete and because he also sort of says that you know the materialism of the french enlightenment if you take it logically leads to socialism mm -hmm. so, so that's that's i think is a good bit on the relationship between marxism and the enlightenment that and um, you can say similar things about um, individualism as well, 
that the um, Engels famously excitedly wrote a letter to Marx when he came across Max Stirner's egoism, <laughs> that the true egoist would become a communist of necessity. Yeah. That if you truly wanted to sort of liberate the individual, then you would have to become a communist because socialism, because capitalism um, produces more, you are freer to become an individual within capitalism because of an advanced um, division of production. So everything is split into all these different parts and all of a sudden you are no longer, you know, as a woman now, you don't just sit around and like pound millet for eight hours a day in the, in the vast majority of cases around the world. And this leaves you free then to become something else or many different things. Uh, and the more that production is socialized as is happening under capitalism, um, uh, the more you are free to be an individual. Um, but we're not we're not there yet. We are still, you know, that we're in this sort of middle period, I suppose you could say, where we are appendages of the machine and feel alienated from this creativity. But it, it's still the case that through that alienation, you have the potential for a, a sublation, a, a return or a, not a return um, in a higher form, obviously, not not going back, but. You have this ability to realize being an individual in a fully formed way and you be and there's a if you will socialized individualism in the sense that there is a this dichotomy between individualism or individual freedom and the freedom of the collective kind of is abolished because because <clears throat> one of the things about capitalism is it creates individuals but also socialized society itself that it creates a form of um, a way that it creates the social infrastructure, if you will, for individuals or individualism to potentially flourish. Mm -hmm. That human beings won't, will be like, you know, socialized individualists, socialized individuals, if you will. You only become an individual in the context of society. And we become paradoxically even more so individual we're f that uh, we're individual enough without society that we will just starve because we have no capacity to create our own, to reproduce our own existence outside of the social, uh, the way that it is produced in our society. You can't, even if you wanted to have like a garden, um, you still have to buy the land. There's nothing outside of it. Um, and so you, this creates a situation where you are so ironically so dependent on society as an individual that you can't even like go out and pick an apple. <laughs> yeah. um, so this is a sort of contradiction where we become even more individuals, but also more dependent on society. Um, but you had said, you mentioned before uh, that the subject kind of changes and unfolds, obviously as a historical outgrowth of history in different social forms. And you said it expands. Um, but this seems to me to be teleological because what's happening now within our societies is um, a destruction of the subject, it seems to me. Um, and the subject doesn't seem to be expanding, but collapsing. Yeah. So how do, we, how do we explain that? Well, this is, I suppose, another difference between Marxism and liberalism is that liberalism views progress in a kind of more linear fashion, whereas Marxism opens the possibility that social regression is possible and that's what we've seen you know a kind of deep kind of social and philosophical regression in the sense that 
the sub, you know, people's subjectivities is narrowed. You know, how we experience history itself is very truncated. That uh, history is treated like a, as like a dumpster for references and signifiers and facts, but doesn't isn't sort of seen as having any meaning or purpose or sort of direction. In this, in this sense, we really do live in postmodern times in the sense that we still live in modernity, but without the telos of um, communist revolution that did give modernity meaning. That, mm. human, that what, you know, there's a, that what Marxism gave history meaning in the sense that human beings, men and women, were participants in this great historical drama and they were the protagonists and they had you know the capacity to change the way this story ends or how you know change the way the story unfolds and because we've had this sort of experience so much defeat crisis and you know social regression that sense of history is sort of being like lost and disintegrated so in history is just seen as something that just happens to you almost fatalistic deterministic and that our capacity to change how it goes it's sort of been uh, uh, depreciated so is it that the idea of our liberal subject well, yeah. Is it the liberal subject as an idea that is dead, or is it really dead? If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.